The following recording is a presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California, and of Pastor Val Mark Smith. We are an independent Baptist congregation committed to the accurate presentation of the historical doctrines of the faith. We welcome your visit to our services anytime here in the Rohnert Park area. Now, if you'd open your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 9, and then if you would also find Leviticus chapter 16 and put your finger in that passage, we're going to read from Leviticus 16 in just a few minutes. Hebrews chapter 9, and then hang on to your Bible because we've got more to read, and we may do more reading and less preaching tonight, and that's okay because what God has to say is more important than what I have to say. But we find ourselves in another appropriate position with our study this evening. This is our Lord's Supper evening, and I can't think of a better subject than we would speak of God's mercy in sending Christ to die for our sins. Now, we are studying typology in the Old Testament through the tabernacle, sacrifices, and all of these different uh, pictures in the Old Testament. And the Lord's Supper is typology for the New Testament. In the Old Testament, the typology looks forward to the coming of Christ, that he would come to die as God's sacrifice for sin. And in the New Testament, in the Lord's Supper, we see that God did send his sacrifice, that he did come. And we are to observe this supper thinking about the cross of Christ and how he died for our sins there. And the Word of God says that we're to do this until he comes again. And this afternoon in our study of seeking the Savior in the sacrifices, we we shift to the place where the atonement was made for the sins of Israel, God's elect nation. And there is a place where sacrifice and blood and ritual all meet. And this is where the blood was sprinkled for the sins, for the covering of the sins of the entire nation of Israel. And the sacrificial blood that was used for this purpose was sprinkled in this place only one time each year. It was open for salvation's business, you might say only one time each year. And the high priest would would go there. Uh, All other times of the year he is kept out of there. Only one time of the year could he go. And that was on the Day of Atonement. And this is when he entered the holiest place of all. And he came with the atoning blood to put on the mercy seat. Now Hebrews chapter 9 explains the Old Testament ritual. And this is what we've been searching for in this long study. How did these sacrifices of the Old Testament all eventually lead up to the most important sacrifice of all? And how do they represent satisfying God uh, by the sacrifice of Christ for the onerous sins of millions who don't know our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ? Well, Hebrews 9 gives us background for Old Testament. And in the first verse, Hebrews 9, verse number 1, Then verily, the first covenant, and that's speaking of the Old Testament covenant, then verily, the first covenant had also ordinances of divine service and a worldly sanctuary. For there was a tabernacle made, the first, wherein was the candlestick and the table, and the showbread, which is called the sanctuary, and after the second veil, the tabernacle, which is called the holiest of all, which had the golden censer and the ark of the covenant overlaid round about with gold, wherein was the golden pot that had manna, and Aaron's rod that budded, and the tables of the covenant, 
and over it the cherubims of glory shadowing the mercy seat of which we cannot now speak particularly. Now, when these things were thus ordained, the priests went always into the first tabernacle, accomplishing the service of God. But into the second went the high priest alone, once every year, not without blood, which he offered for himself and for the heirs of the people. The Holy Ghost is signifying that the way into the holiest of all was not yet made manifest, while as the first tabernacle was yet standing." which was a figure of the true of the for the time rather uh, then present in which were offered both gifts and sacrifices that could not make him that did the service perfect as pertaining to the conscience which stood only in meats and drinks and divers washings and carnal ordinances imposed on them until the time of reformation but Christ being come an high priest of good things to come by a greater and more perfect tabernacle not made with hands that is to say not of this building neither by the blood of goats and calves but by his own blood he entered in once into the holy place having obtained eternal redemption for us for if the blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of a heifer sprinkling the unclean sanctifieth to the purifying of the flesh how much more shall the blood of Christ who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God purge your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Oh in these verses we see the connection of the high priest activities on the day of atonement the connection to the mercy seat which shows the final act of redemption whereby Christ Uh, enables our acceptance by God by making atonement for us. Now the Old Testament doesn't have nearly as much information about the accomplishment of the blood. We're told that atonement was made, but we're unable to make all of these connections until the author of Hebrews in the New Testament explains this and he tells us here the significance of all these acts that took place in uh, in the Old Testament. In Leviticus 16, the command is given to observe the day of atonement the mechanics of all of it are discussed and we've already had five sermons of discussion about that and so we'll just notice here very briefly the movements of the priest as he performed the ritual uh, first he would take off the beautiful array of priestly garments and he would put only on the uh, white linen coat and breeches he put a white belt around his waist and then he put a white linen mitre on his head and those were the only garments that were allowed uh, for him to wear as he went into the holy of holies and it seems strange to us that those most beautiful garments that we've studied and uh, with with just the costly array of all that they made and just the uh, the intricate work that went into that 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 was not worn when the priests went in on the highest holiest day in Israel but that's God's choice and this is God's way and it was the only way that God would allow the priest to enter into his presence where the word of God says that he would meet him at the mercy seat Aaron wore the special clothes for beauty and for glory at the other ceremonies that took place on the day when the other sacrifices were made that is the normal daily sacrifices he would wear those but when it came to this sacrifice this is not normal This one is unique. This is the one that's done only once each year. And when the first part of chapter 16 there is a selection of goats. You can read that. We have read it before. Uh, there are two goats that are selected. One is the goat of confession and he is called that goat is called the scapegoat 
And then the other goat was to be sacrificed, and that's the goat whose blood was to be applied in the Holy of Holies. The first was set free. And that symbolized that we are free from our sins. It symbolizes redemption, that sins are taken away from us. And the other goat is the method by which that is done. And the Word of God says the only way that your sins can be taken away from you is by the shedding of blood. Uh, There must be a sacrifice and blood must be applied. Well, then we see that there is also a a bullock that was killed. We'll see that in the 16th chapter. Its blood was taken into the sanctuary first. That was an offering for the cleansing of the priest because the priest was a sinful man, just as all of us are. And so when he had atoned, when he had gone into uh, the Holy of Holies to atone for his sins that made him symbolically pure, as Christ is pure, then he could come back and offer the blood of the goat for the sins of the people. Now, if you'll look at verse 11 in Leviticus chapter 16, we can read here the background of the Hebrews passage. And Leviticus 16, verse number 11, And Aaron shall bring the bullock of the sin offering which is for himself. That's what I was just discussing. The sin offering which is for himself. And shall make an atonement for himself and for his house. And shall kill the bullock of the sin offering which is for himself. And he shall take a censer full of burning coals of fire from off the altar before the Lord, and his hands full of sweet incense, beaten small, and bring it within the veil. And he shall put the incense upon the fire before the Lord, that the cloud of the incense may cover the mercy seat that is upon the testimony that he die not. And he shall take of the blood of the bullock and sprinkle it with his finger upon the mercy seat eastward. And before the mercy seat shall he sprinkle of the blood with his finger seven times. Then shall he kill the goat of the sin offering that is for the people and bring his blood within the veil. And do that and do with that blood as he did with the blood of the bullock and sprinkle it upon the mercy seat and before the mercy seat. Now those, those things are the mechanics of what the priest was supposed to do in preparation to make atonement and to take that blood into the most holy place to sprinkle on the mercy seat. Now the, these are parts that uh, I might need to explain because some might not have understanding of this or even a vague understanding of, of the tabernacle. And so I just want to back up just a little bit to review God's instructions for building the tent of the congregation that's called the tabernacle. Just, just very briefly about that, and then we're going to deal with that subject uh, some weeks uh, ahead of us now. But significantly, in, in God's instructions, the first parts of the tabernacle that Moses was told to make were the furnishings that went inside. And first among all the furnishings that he was to make was the tabernacle's most important furnishing, and that is the Ark of the Covenant. And on this Ark, there was a mercy seat, and that's where the blood atonement was made. And so before a tent was ever made to place all of these these different furnishings in, God said that they are to fashion this finely crafted box that directly related to the work of Christ in redemption. Now I want to show you a picture Uh, which unfortunately doesn't give us the the full view of the Ark of the Covenant, but it does uh, show the part that we're discussing, and that is the mercy seat. And the mercy seat is that flat part that makes up the top of the Ark. And on each end of it, there are uh, cherubs with their wings outstretched over it, or extended over it. 
And here we see the priest in the picture dipping his finger in a basin of blood, and he's ready to sprinkle that blood on the mercy seat. And then you also notice that there is a glowing light, which represents the presence of God, and that is known as the Shekinah. But I believe that picture is missing something. I'm going to describe that momentarily. It shouldn't be quite as clear what you see there in this picture. Now, the instructions for the materials and the size and the shape of the Ark of the Covenant are given in Exodus 25. It wasn't very big. Uh, it was 45 inches long and 45 inches high, or 27 inches high, rather, and 27 inches wide. And it was a rectangular box that was overlaid with gold, and those two materials represent the humanity and the divinity of Christ. Now, if you'll turn your Bibles to Exodus 25, there are instructions for making the mercy seat, and they're given just after the instructions for the ark. And so the mercy seat is our subject, so I think that we should read this part and familiarize ourselves with it. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God, and these Scriptures in Exodus have their usefulness as all of God's Word is useful. Now, if you look in Exodus 25 and verse number 17... And thou shalt make a mercy seat of pure gold. Two cubits and a half shall be the length thereof, and a cubit and a half the breadth thereof. And thou shalt make two cherubims of gold. Of beaten work shalt thou make them. Now let's, let's put the picture, if you roll back to that last picture for just a minute. Let's keep that up there for just a second as we read this, and you'll see how this corresponds. But he says, make two cherubims of gold of beaten work shalt thou make them in the two ends of the mercy seat. And make one cherub on the one end, and the other cherub on the other end, even of the mercy seat shall, she, shall ye make the cherubs on the two ends thereof. And the cherubim shall stretch forth their wings on high, covering the mercy seat with their wings, and their faces shall look one to another. Toward the mercy seat shall the faces of the cherubims be. And thou shalt put the mercy seat above the ark, and in the ark thou shalt put the testimony that I shall give thee. And there I will meet with thee, and I will commune with thee from above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubims which are upon the ark of the testimony of all things which I will give thee in commandment unto the children of Israel. And that bright light that we see, that is God meeting with the priest at the mercy seat. Now, I would suggest that if you want to be a good Bible student, that you would familiarize yourself with this and also with the Hebrews passage, because what we see in these pictures are the background of our salvation. And so if you, you want to know more how salvation works, well, this is the way that you find out. And this, this uh, uh, the word here that we're reading here makes the work of the priest more understandable to us. Now, make note in the text that God said that he would meet them at the mercy seat. And he meant that he would meet the people in their representative. Now, not all of Israel went into the Holy of Holies, but God met with the people in the representative. And folks, that is the same place where God meets with us. That God meets with us at his mercy seat in his representative, which is the great high priest, Jesus Christ. Hebrews 4.14 says, Seeing then that we have a great high priest that is passed into the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our profession. Communion with God takes place only in Jesus Christ. 
And we would do well to mark that down and put that down as an axiom of religion that the, that the number one requirement to have a relationship with God is to know Jesus Christ. You must know Him. It's only His blood that reconciles us to the Father. And this, this, what we're just talking about, gives teeth to what Jesus said in the New Testament when He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And there's no one who comes to the Father except by me. Well, I'm somewhat overwhelmed with this discussion and how tabernacle worship should be presented. The tabernacle, in fact, functions as an entire system. Each part of it adds its own significance. And what we've done, we've just taken bits and pieces here and there to construct the sermons on the sacrifices and other things that we've talked about. And when we do that, it's, it's like trying to build a two-story building by putting on the second story first. It's hard to do. We need that first floor to get real, the real foundation of what this is all for. So I need to go back for just a little bit to the first floor before we can reach the pinnacle of tabernacle worship, which was the Ark of the Covenant with its mercy seat. So let's think for just a moment about Moses when he came down from Mount Sinai. And you remember the story how that Moses had been in the presence of God and his face was glowing with the glory of God. And as he came down, he had in his hands two tablets of stone. These were the Ten Commandments, and they were etched in that stone by the finger of God himself. And that scene was frightening. It was stunning. And when Israel saw Moses come down with these tablets of the law, they said, we can't speak with God. Moses, we can't talk with God. You've got to speak for us. You've got to be the mediator. You've got to be the one that stands in our place to speak to God for us. And there we find the function of God's law, that as Moses brings that law down, the law is terrifying, and the law remains a terrifying mediator. The law stands against us, and the law stands there to declare our failure to be righteous. The law is good, though, because the law teaches us to turn to Christ. We can't appease God with the law. We can't stop God's wrath against us with the law because breaking the law is the cause of his wrath against us. So we're under just punishment. We rightly deserve the condemnation and we can never escape this horrible prospect that we are under the condemnation, the wrath of God. We can't escape that by anything that we do. Now we look at Exodus 25 and verse number 21 and we see what Moses was told to put inside of the ark. There it says, Thou shalt put the mercy seat above upon the ark, and in the ark thou shalt put the testimony that I shall give thee. So inside that ark is placed the testimony, and that testimony is the law. That's the two tablets that Moses received from God. The law is the basis of judgment. It's the character of God in His holiness. And the law that's kept perfectly is a statement of God's righteousness and it's a statement of the perfect justice by which all of us are going to be judged and when that law is put inside of the ark it symbolizes that God is not going to deviate from his holy character that when you meet with God the law is against you and justice needs to be satisfied and that blood that blood atonement is made to satisfy God's unrelenting justice and so as a practical application to our Christianity, it teaches us that in our evangelism, we must take people to the law. We must take them there and understand that law and gospel are not antagonistic, as 
The tabernacle parts work together for worship, so the law and the gospel work together to bring us salvation, to bring lost sinner to the place of worship. So the sinner then has to be beaten down by the law. He must be beaten down by the demands of the law, which will cause him to fall on the mercy and the grace of God to grant a covering for his sin. And this is what we see. This is the picture that we see with the tables being placed inside the ark. The, the, the law was placed inside and then it's covered up by the lid of the mercy seat. And so the law was hidden from view underneath that covering that's been sprinkled with the blood. And in the antitypical application, Jesus Christ is that mercy seat that keeps the law out of God's view when he looks at us. Well, thank God for that. Hebrews says in chapter 1 that God has spoken to us in these last days through His Son, Jesus Christ. And only in Christ is the law covered. And so His blood sprinkled on the mercy seat in heaven is what grants access to God. So we do insist on the law in evangelism. Sinners must be brought to that recognition of their guilt before God before they can be brought to mercy and the grace of the cross. So the gospel has no meaning without judgment being satisfied by faith in the atoning work of Jesus Christ. Now I need not go into all this again except to repeat that repentance is our response to the law. It must be there. If repentance is not there, then our faith doesn't mean anything. So the basis of God dealing with us in mercy is because the law condemns us. And there must be a way to come out from under the condemnation of the law. Well, let me speak just a little bit more on the physical component, that is the act of ritual before we go on. Leviticus says that the priest would take, put on his white garments and he would take a censer with coals of fire and he put incense on the fire so that there was a cloud of smoke that rose to cover the mercy seat. I referred to that a moment ago that the, the picture of the priest standing there I don't think is quite accurate. The picture should be hazy because of the smoke. And there are various opinions why that that was done. On the outside of the most holy place, in front of the veil that separated the two, there stood an altar of incense. Uh, This next picture shows us that altar of incense, and that stands right in front of that veil that goes into the Holy of Holies. And you can see the horns that are on the top of it, Blood was put on those horns. Incense was burned uh, to represent intercession that's needed for us to come to God. And when that incense was burned on this altar, it also represented the prayers of God's people as they go up to Him. And that vapor rising from the sweet incense that's burned shows that prayer is a pleasing aroma in the nostrils of God. Then our next picture shows the priest putting blood on the horns of the altar. Now you'll notice there that he's in his full dress and he did this part before he entered the Holy of Holies with the blood to sprinkle it. Now concerning that censer that's taken behind the veil, was it necessary to take it behind there to show the same picture that's being shown on the outside? I mean, is it necessary for uh, incense being burned on the inside to represent the, the prayers of God's people? Or might the incense burn on the other side of that veil have something else to say? Well, I favor what the Puritan John Trapp had to say about this. I think that he had a better idea. 
And he suggested that there must be a screen between us and the holiness of God. That God appeared in the glorious light of the Shekinah. And was the priest able to stand in that great light of God's glory? Oh, we know that when Moses went up on the mountain, he couldn't stand in the glory of God. Said God said, I'm going to have to shelter you. I'll put you in the cleft of the rock and there I'll hide you. I'll hide you in that cleft as my glory passes by. And so I think it's better that we would see that as the purpose of the incense, that it shrouded the room in smoke so the unvarnished glory of God couldn't be seen. And you'll notice that those scriptures we read said the priest must do this, that he did not die. And likewise, Moses was told, no one can see God's face and live. God dwells in an unapproachable light. And so we can only imagine the priest could not stand the intensity of that light. And so to do his duty, to go in where he must sprinkle the blood, where God dwells, he must have the intensity of that light abated by the smoke of the incense, the burning incense. God said, this is the place where I will meet with you. And his glory was there. Now another thing to note about the priest's actions behind the veil was the number of times that he sprinkled the blood. He dipped his finger seven times and sprinkled seven times. Well, that would leave us scurrying throughout the Bible to find some significance. The number seven. Why did the priest do this seven times? And if you start searching the Bible, looking for the number of set, number seven, that's going to be the easiest search you'll ever do. Because seven is all over the Bible. Seven days of creation, for instance, or six days of creation, the seventh day of rest. Every week is seven days. You get into the book of Revelation, and there you find that there are seven churches of Asia. And as we've learned, those seven churches represented churches in all time. And then we saw that there are uh, seven golden candlesticks in that chapter, and those represent those seven churches. There are seven letters, and those seven letters represent the complete message that God has for his church and then you'll find that there are seven spirits in Christ and those seven spirits say that Jesus Christ has the fullness of God's Holy Spirit then you'll find seven vials of wrath that represent the judgment of God and that is the complete judgment of God poured out on the earth and on and on and on it goes you see that number seven and that number stands for the seven Time sprinkling stands for completeness. It stands for the complete cleansing of the inner sanctuary. It represents the complete washing of sinners from the violence of their sins. And so after seven times, when the priest has dipped seven times, the blood has fully atoned for the sins of the people. And from there, there's nothing else that needs to be done. The blood of the animal was sufficient in its type. And likewise, we learn that the blood of Jesus Christ is a seven times sprinkling. That it fully atones for our sins. It cleanses us and makes us worthy to commune with the holy God. Now, sadly, in man's religion, people always want to add something to that. They want to add something to the picture. Man wants to have a part of it. In Galatians, we, we learned that it was the Judaizers who wanted to add circumcision to it. They wanted to add pieces of the law to it. We've already noted, though, that that law is hidden from view. It's not on top of the mercy seat. It has no place on top of the mercy seat. So the law can't be brought into this picture. Today, other aspects of rituals are done, and that is to bring sacraments into it. 
Salvation, they say, is not complete unless you're baptized. Salvation is not complete unless there is a mass. And then there are others who reject all those notions and they're still wrong because now they want to bring repentance and faith and try to produce regeneration out of their own repentance and faith. And they think these are things that make the atonement sufficient. But I want you to notice that we see that atonement is made by the priest actions, not by anything that's done on the outside by the people. The seven times sprinkling is enough. And God, through Jesus Christ, did enough. And so these activities clarify the type. So we're not left wondering why did the priest do this. Hebrews explains. If God said, I'm going to meet you at the mercy seat, then we must know that that mercy seat represents Jesus Christ. Well, with that introduction and explanation of activities, and with the construction of the mercy seat, now we're ready to commence the outline. And we'll just get a start on it tonight. First in our outline is the approach for worship. The stage has now been set for the approach. Priest is in his proper garments. He's taken off everything but that white linen robe, a white belt, and a white hat. Now he's ready to go into the inner sanctuary. He had a censer in his hand. That's to create the smoke that would shield him from the brilliant glory of God. He had blood in a basin. And he would take that in and he would sprinkle it on the mercy seat above the Ark of the Covenant. Inside, underneath, there's the lid uh, of the mercy seat. Underneath that lid, there are the tables of the law. Now, I confess, I'm not sure how he was able to carry the censer and the bowl of blood and walk up to that very, very heavy curtain and push it aside, how he was able to do that. Our next picture might give you an indication of how he held everything up there to open that curtain to go on the inside. But as he approached the curtain... He would push it aside to enter it. And that room, you must understand, was very mystical. A very mystical room. There must have been great anticipation to walk up to that and to push that veil aside knowing God is on the other side. God is on the other side in that brilliant light. Just imagine the first time that a priest would do this. When the high priest died, there would be another one that would take his place. And there was no way that the priest could imagine what it must be like that very first time that he went up to push that veil aside. Minute details have all been observed to get to this point. We've read Leviticus 16 for the proceedings of it. Previous chapters have already discussed sacrifice. And so all these details are being observed. And the priest dared not approach that veil unless he had remembered to do everything precisely as God commanded. Remember, God said, you must do this so that you don't die. Now, that's fair warning to us that God has his method of approach. God has a way to be worshipped. But we notice our designs of worship aren't mostly, I think, to please God. Worship must please us. What are we getting out of it? What is our desire for worship? And so we tend to be less reverent, I think, than what God requires I don't see any reason to think that reverence for God is something that's relegated to the Old Testament. There must be reverence for God in these times, in New Testament times. And I've mentioned this many times, that Baptists strongly reject the liturgical forms of worship. We reject the forms of Catholicism, high Protestantism, and all those things. But I think at the same time, we may unintentionally... Uh, may we have, we've 
unintentionally created too much laxity in our attitude of worship. We're strongly opinionated as Baptists that we must be free, we must be loose when we worship. Changing the mistake of that paradigm is a very, very difficult process. And I will reflect on the question that I asked this morning before I began the message. How many of you take change easily? Most of us don't. And so trying to change the paradigm of worship is a very, very difficult thing to do. But I think that what we've done is we've let Catholicism and high church steal too much from us. And so what we've done, we just sort of backed off anything that smacks of high church. Now, as you know, I, I have this, this, this strong urge, this pull inside of me to make church a sanctuary rather than a circus. I've seen Baptist churches that put Wheel of Fortune on the platform. And they spin the wheel to give a prize to see who, who gets a prize for inviting ten people to church. Spin the wheel to get your prize. Thank God we haven't gone that far. We don't have a balloon Sunday. We don't have a stick the dollar bill under the seat Sunday. So... You get a prize for going to church. And I'll not get into the flag-waving Sunday and patriotic Sunday and first responder Sunday. There may be a time and place for those, but I don't think it's the same place as where God meets with His people. Now, I, I would hope that somehow we could have a meeting place on this, a meeting of the mind somewhere between stoicism and cage fighting. Somewhere in the middle of that. But, but I probably am not going to live long enough that we're going to see that. At times, you know, I even fight my own irreverence in the, in the pulpit. But in my opinion, we have developed an irreverent, irreverent habits by rejection of something more formal as we worship. Well, two important spiritual components are necessary before we approach God. Physical activities here are emblematic of the spiritual, and so uh, we'll just talk about one of these tonight. First, the approach of worship is only through the body of Christ. That we approach God through the body of Christ. How is it that the priest was to access the most holy place where God dwells? Well, we've seen pictures. There's a curtain that blocks him out. That blocked the entrance to keep him from God. 364 days each year he was kept out, or if you're... Going by the Hebrew calendar, that would be 359 days each year that he was kept out. But our text in Hebrews 9 verse 3 does say that there is a second veil. The first door is the door to the outer sanctuary. That's the entrance into the tabernacle. And I'd like to show you uh, some pictures uh, here. And um, maybe we could just talk for a moment about a mistake that's in these pictures. And I'll, I'll see if you can spot it. But this is the first veil. This is the entrance into the sanctuary. That's We're looking, of course, from the outside of the tabernacle. That first veil is a curtain that makes the door of entrance. This would be the view facing west because the tabernacle was set up to face the east. Now, in the next picture, you can see that there's a second veil, and this blocks off the Holy of Holies, and behind that veil is the Ark of the Covenant. This picture would also be facing west. In this picture, you'll see the golden candlestick is on the north side and the table of showbread is on the south side. Now, in the next picture, we're facing east as the priest is leaving the tabernacle here and he's going back outside. And that curtain that he's pushing aside is the first curtain. That's the door that made up the uh, uh, entrance and so he could push that aside to go outside. Now, is there, is there a problem with this? Well, we're facing east east now 
and we see the candlestick is on the south side and the table of showbread is on the north side. Well, let me show you a, a tabernacle layout so you can get the right orientation in your mind. I hope that you can see that. Uh, and you can see there that the uh, golden candlestick, the menorah, if you want to call it that, is there on the, that would be what, the south side? Isn't that right? Facing east, the east is that way, there's the north, south, east, west, so it's on the south side. And the table of showbread is at the top there, and that's on the north side. So both earlier pictures then, when we saw they can't be right. So this, I'm telling you this just so you'll know that when your neighbor next door comes over and he has a question for you and he wants to know, now which side was the table of, tobread, uh, table of showbread? Which side is the golden candlestick on? Well, you can say, well, this is the way it goes. And you know the explanation. Candlestick goes on the south, table of showbread goes on the north. And I never noticed that in our pictures until early this year as I was going back over this, that when the um, original slides were, were uh, made into digital files, the digital file was flipped. And so we got the wrong picture. So I thought, we've got to get this right because if we don't, our faith is vain. We're still in our sins. We've, we've got to figure all that out. And, you know, I said, we're going to be precise. We shall be. The Levites who set up the tabernacle would never have made that mistake. Never have made that mistake. Well, now that we've conquered that theological black hole, let's continue. Facing the priest going in, that is going westward, what's in front of him is a second veil. And that is the only way that he can get into the Holy of Holies. Now, by the way, sometimes when I'm speaking, I interchange holy place and holy of holies. Both of those are correct. In Hebrews, there is a a distinction between holy place and most holy place, or as we see in the text, the holiest of all. So the holy, uh, the holy place is the first compartment, and the holiest of all is the second compartment. And in this text of Hebrews chapter 9, those two compartments are also distinguished as the first tabernacle, that's the first section of the tabernacle, and the second tabernacle, which produces a little bit of confusion about Hebrews 9.12, if you still have Hebrews open, because in the 12th verse, it says, Neither by the blood of goats and calves, but by his own blood, he entered in once into the holy place, having obtained eternal redemption for us. So there it says he entered once into the holy place. But we know that the priest entered many times into the holy place and only once into the holy of holies. So what does that mean? I'm not going to explain that tonight. You've got to come back next week and I'm going to clear up that mystery. So the second veil has great significance, although we're not told in the Old Testament what it stands for. We need the New Testament to explain, and that's the author of Hebrews' intent, as he convinces a Jewish audience that forsaking Old Testament Judaism and turning to Christ is far better than remaining in the old shadows of the law. Now, this reemphasizes the point to us, that we need both Old and New Testaments to complete the picture of Christ. We seek Christ in the Old Testament, and the New Testament tells us where to look. And now, where do we look for the last sacrifice that needed to be made? We look to Christ. Blessed be God for Jesus Christ. And that brings us then to New Testament typology and this once-for-all sacrifice of Jesus Christ that's shown in the Lord's Supper. So we're going to go to the Lord's Supper, and I would like you to stand, if you would. And we want to pray, and we want to 
thank God for the supper. And as I do, we'll prepare for the singing of the communion hymn. Our deacons will come forward, musicians come forward, if you will, to prepare for the administration of the supper. So let's, for your word, uh, we bless your holy name for the pictures that we have of what Jesus Christ did for us in saving us from our sins. We thank you, Lord, for this supper and how it pictures the cross of Christ, the bloodshed, the body broken and beaten, and then forgiveness of sins that is won through the cross, through the power of the cross. Thank you, Lord, for our fellowship as a church this evening as we look to you in this supper tonight. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California. If you would like further information about our church, please feel free to call us at area code 707-584-7275 or write to us at Berean Baptist Church, 6298 Country Club Drive, Rohnert Park, California, 94928. Additionally, you may visit us on the World Wide Web at www.bebaptist.org.